0: Among the many things that I really love and value about metapractice practice is that it doesn't require a specific place or posture or time to do it in or a particular depth of samadhi, of concentration, so that there's never any such thing as waiting, like as we sit and we wait for people to gather together It's not that we have to gather together in order to all get started, there's a little bit of time, so one sits and one does metta resolves, just the same as one does while in line at the supermarket or in line at the DMV, which is a very good place to do (laughs) metta. Every place, I I came home on a flight a week ago um, that was delayed for various reasons, and so by the time the flight got to San Francisco it was four and a half hours late but and then the luggage was forty five minutes coming up from the wherever it is that they send it up from. And the one watches the attempt of the mind or the the, the tendency of the mind to get involved in a story about it, you know, to start pawing the ground so to speak in <laughs> irritation. But there's only two choices. No amount of irritation will materialize the luggage sooner.
1: <laughs> the only
0: thing it does is it stirs up the heart. And I think the only thing that it accomplishes is that it agitates, and so there's, uh, there, there are two possibilities for me at that time. I can do meta practice myself, which is really the instant first aid for the possibility of flurry of the mind. Or, if it doesn't come readily to me, I can remind myself of the magic mantra which will then allow me to do the metta practice. The magic mantra is, nothing is worth getting aggravated about. (laughs) That's a very magic mantra. I mean, it's worth taking action sometimes. Often there are things worth taking action about. There's nothing worth getting stirred up and agitated about because then the action you take won't be so clear. I mean, a lot of times we should get moved to do something and do something. But to do it from a place of balance and clarity as opposed to a place of agitation makes a lot of sense to me. So that's the magic mantra. Nothing is worth getting agitated about. If you can remind yourself of that, then you can do the metta. May I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being. So there's no such a thing as um time that you're waiting. What would you be waiting for? I mean here you are. I mean, even if you were waiting to get started on the afternoon when we get started on the afternoon, it's just going to be the same as this morning. I mean we could get a head start on it by I mean have you notice the tendency of the mind of sitting to wait till it starts, but what would we once we start it'll just be the same right mean. It's, which is just to remind you it's not to tease but to remind you that this is a practice that you do all the time really it's a it's a day long lifelong practice a friend of mine reminded me uh, that this is really quite similar to the way of the pilgrim those of you who did who have a christian background will remember in the way of the pilgrim the pilgrim is reminded to pray without ceasing that's the admonition pray without ceasing What he was doing was the Jesus prayer over and over and over and over and over again until it became just like breathing. So it's kind of running all the time as background to whatever is happening. That's really the same as metta practice, and you just do that without ceasing. And what it's doing is it's preparing that sort of steadiness of heart that allows us to meet all situations and all persons in a way that we can be most available, most kind, most compassionate, most uh, supportive, and most equanimous, which are really the what I call the four divine abodes of the mind. Don't they sound pretty divine? Imagine if we loved everyone. I'm sitting this morning and I look out and I see everybody sitting and I know everybody is just radiating good thoughts. There's a poem by Pablo Neruda where he says, I'm going to count to ten and we'll all be quiet. And then he speculates about what the world would be like if we all counted to ten and everybody just got quiet. Or if we got quiet and counted to ten, not very long. But this morning I had the image as we were sitting here, what if the whole world stopped for an hour and everybody radiated good thoughts? Just even say at those people that they could see. Not even people far away, because if they radiated at the people that they could see and then they radiated and that they radiated, somehow we would have sort of one of those hands around the world fences. What if we all radiated goodwill at the same time? Might stop the planet in the orbit or something like that. But it's a different way of being. It's really to live in a harmless place and to feel happy as a result. People sometimes, it took me a while actually to get the profound um, extraordinariness of this practice, that it's not uh, its not just a head trip, it's not idle thoughts about other people, it's really cultivating happiness in oneself. We're I mean, making all resolutions for other people, But the making of those resolutions, which is the removal of grudges and opinions and categories. Okay, these people I love, but not those people. And these people now, but not now. Now, Maybe not now, yesterday, but not now that they're behaving in this way. Yesterday I loved them, but not today, because they're doing this. Why not all the time? We make boundaries for ourselves. We talked about loving our children in an unconditioned way. What if we loved everybody in an unconditioned way, which would not be stop us from taking appropriate action with people who were behaving unskillfully would actually help us to take more appropriate action with them than action that came out of a flurried-up heart. So that's what this practice is about. When I first heard it in the beginning, it did not I didn't get it that it's extraordinary practice. It's really extraordinary. So I'd like to suggest in the time that we have left, that we recapitulate our practice and start from the beginning with ourselves and our benefactors and our good friends and our neutral folks, I'd like to suggest that we try it, if you're comfortable with this, doing it with your eyes open. Close your eyes if you want to or close your eyes if you get tired. It's a little different with eyes open. I want us to do it with eyes open for a couple of reasons. One of them, the most trivial reason, is it's after lunch and if you close your eyes, it's likely to fall asleep. That's not the main reason. That's the least reason. The main reason is it's a life practice. In the DMV, you have your eyes open. Waiting for the luggage, the eyes are open. In the supermarket, the eyes are open. Dealing on your work with other folks, your eyes are open. You see people in the world, you look like you're regular. What's <laughs> happening that's irregular is that your radio is broadcasting meta. That's irregular. It's not unnormal, it's just unusual. So I'd like you, if you can, to keep your eyes open in a kind of a relaxed way. Not to look at anybody. Just look somewhere. And see if you can do some meta. Why don't you start with yourself and or your benefactor, just those two folks in however much you want to each one, one and the other, then one and the other. And I'll tell you when to open it out to let other folks in. If you want to, you could include in your wishing those people who constitute the people that you love a lot, and people in that category of close and love, well-loved friends. next part of this practice is you keep on saying those phrases. Look at somebody. It may have come with somebody who you know and love well, in which case that has a particular meaningfulness when you look at them, and it may be that the person next to you you don't know at all. It doesn't matter because you're going to look at more than one person. So look at one person now. Don't have to do anything, don't say anything. Just look at them and keep on saying your things in your heart and mind. But find somebody to look at. Maybe turn around and find somebody right there. If we absolutely turn out to have an uneven number of people, three people can look at each other. It will work with three people. Don't have to do anything. Don't move a lot. Just look at somebody who's looking at you. Make sure you see somebody. And then without being abrupt about it, make a little change of your sitting so you just see somebody else. It's hard to move from where you are, but just see somebody else for a while. Just a little look differently. and then make one more adjustment. Just turn around or look around. Maybe two or three people will look at each other. Don't find yourself without a person looking at you or without you looking at somebody. Doesn't matter, of course, because then you can be in your mind's eye looking at everybody. and can have all the more partners, but if you feel funny about it, make sure that you're looking at somebody. If you need to, you can always close your eyes and rest. And look again. The looking is just a way of letting that person know that at this moment, there in the field of your metta but really your field of metta is all around you so everybody's in the field of your metta this is just the particular person who knows it at this moment in the larger sense everybody's in the field of your metta and you particularly are in the middle of that field And that really is the secret surprise of this practice, that the practice of the generosity of of well-wishing is really ultimately the great gift that we give ourselves of happiness, of contentment, and of ease. And the more people that we include in our field, the more our own sense of being gifted is enhanced. So it's some time that can easily do it. You can let go of this person and come back to be sitting in your own place again. And close your eyes a little bit. and relax. It's very thrilling. (laughs) It's actually often quite overwhelming. I mean, it's such a big deal to be in love to begin with, but to be in love with everybody is totally (laughs) overwhelming. So now is the most I don't know if this is the most interesting time of metta practice, (laughs) but it is a very interesting time of metta practice. In metta practice, one of the things that we most hope to do is cultivate that sense of pleasure at well-wishing, that sense of really enjoying open-heartedness, that sense of really enjoying unrestricted, benevolence and generosity of heart, that we can even begin to bring to mind people with whom we have some difficulty in life.
2: Because
0: the mind almost has to make a choice. It has two choices. As we bring to mind someone with whom we have some difficulty, someone who has hurt us in some way, caused us pain, towards whom the heart reacts reflexively with alarm and startle and contraction. The heart makes a choice. It can either choose to do its habitual reaction of withdrawing, in which case it loses the feeling of being in love, or it can open in a new way to include even this person in the sphere of well-wishing. Without forgetting the pain that was part of the relationship, or is part of the relationship. Without forgetting the pain, and the grief, perhaps even the danger, of involvement with that person, there's a way in which the heart can countenance it. Somehow in a place of compassion for ourselves if we were to need to close. The heart choosing to remain loving and relaxed. Sometimes it's able to do that in just this space. You cultivate the feeling that you had just in the last minutes of looking into people's eyes. Feel that feeling. Sometimes it's possible to open to compassion by realizing how much one enjoys the feeling of inclusion, the feeling of loving, the feeling of being loved, just how much one wants to cultivate that feeling and continue it. Sometimes it's possible to acknowledge that just as we want so much to feel happy and comfortable, so do all beings. And while acknowledging that certain people have been painful for us, there's sometimes a time when we can realize that whatever they did that was painful came from their attempt to be happy, often maladaptive, often unskillful, but there's a space that's possible around the realization, just as I wish to be happy and feel loved and be loving, so do all beings wish to be happy and feel loved and be loving we cause each other pain it's through ignorance it's through a clouded view and a clouded choice of what will make us happy Sometimes in that more spacious place of wisdom, we can remember and include the people who have hurt us without forgetting the hurt, but without anger arising in our own heart and without bitterness. So in these next minutes, I'll be quiet. Perhaps you can use all of the resources that we've worked on during the day, the face of your benefactor, the pleasure of wishing well to your well-beloved friends and lovers. the pleasure of wishing well to people sharing the day with you who you don't know at all. Use all of those resources as heart softeners and then allow the thought of the person who's hurt you to come to mind and see if you can include them without bitterness in wishing them well. It's also true that sometimes in addition to being able to forgive other people for the pain that they've caused us, sometimes people can do that, but they can have more trouble forgiving themselves for actions in their life about which they have some remorse. Actually, that's one of the techniques that you might want to explore for moving even closer to wholehearted, open-heartedness. If you think for a moment of something in your own life about which you might have some remorse or misgiving, something that you perhaps wish you hadn't done. recent history or in very far away history, see if you can connect just for a moment with the impulse that led you to do whatever it was that you did. It's often possible in a time that the heart is somewhat relaxed and we're feeling somewhat balanced and a little bit mellow, it's possible to look back as more like a benevolent parent would look at a child that's done something foolish and really feel some spaciousness about ourselves. realize that that behavior came from unclear seeing, from lack of wisdom, from a moment of intense need, some really clouding emotion that prevented us from seeing clearly, some maladaptive attempt to be happy, and from the space of being somewhat In the place of a benevolent parent, we can really have compassion on our own selves and forgive ourselves. There's a formula in metta practice, and the formula is, if I have done anything, consciously or unconsciously, to hurt anyone else, I wish I can be forgiven. And often out of the place of that recognition comes the ability to say about other people who have hurt us, (coughs) for other people who have hurt me consciously or unconsciously, I really want to forgive them. Really, an act of generosity to let go of the bad opinion that we had of ourselves or of somebody else. It's an act of generosity to ourselves because it releases the heart from the pain that it has in holding on to it. You can be really easy about it. Sometimes it's really hard to let go of old pains and old mind habits. So don't struggle. To connect with the intention is enough. let take some relaxed breaths in and out. Even without looking around, you can feel all the people in the room around you. Without knowing everybody's stories, we can know that everybody's life is this complicated web of relationships and hurts and losses and griefs and loves and all of us trying to work it out. So just to end this part of the practice, see if we can again just direct some attention to wishing well to the folks around us, those we know and those we don't know. And then keeping those wishes going, just open your eyes in quite a normal way. And look around and just keep on wishing those wishes. Look around, reconnect with being here in this room. amazing isn't it when we when we bring to mind the people that have been difficult in our lives and the people that we've struggled in relationship with and our inner life and our own personal trip becomes so full and so important as it is because we and this is the only story that I have in this lifetime It really fills the whole space. And then if we just reconnect for a moment with the sense that everyone around us whom we know and we don't know has a whole lifetime of stories of people with whom it was easy and people with whom it was hard and people with whom they struggled, people whom they forgave or didn't and people who forgave them or didn't and all these struggles. It's really a way of looking at each other and realizing that We are all in the same amazing boat. (laughs) In a sense it's it's a boat that we all know how to steer and keep forgetting. I mean each of us knows in our heart of hearts that somehow if we could live in a way that had equanimity and balance and love all the time that we'd be free And yet we fall into our stories and it's hard to let them go. I think that's why it's important from time to time to practice with eyes open and in community so we remind each other that that we're all doing the same practice, just the names have been changed. (laughs) Everybody's got a variation of the same story. Actually it's interesting because our story is so compelling to us and the other person's story we often can respond with compassion, often more compassion than our own story. We should talk a little bit now. My sense is that we have three quarters of an hour left together. Like you to ask me some questions about this practice, or tell me some of your experience with this afternoon's practice, and then we'll do an ending meditation, and then it'll be four o'clock. Yes.
2: Well, uh, two things. One is um, this is just a little note, but I, I thought it was going to be funny to do this on Halloween, and I-, I realized it's kind of neat to do this and then go home and. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's really neat, and I not i just kind of thought it was weird before I
0: got here. Today. Well, actually, I thought about Halloween as well because Halloween tomorrow, today is Halloween, but tomorrow's All Souls' Day or All Saints' Day, and the next day is All Souls' Day. And really, what we'll do before we go home in our final meditation together is we'll not only do all beings. Uh, incarnate which is what we've been doing up to now is we'll do all beings on all realms which will take care of all saints and all souls and (laughs) uh, and actually there's a whole there's a litany of the the levels of beings including uh, enlightened beings unenlightened beings um, so we get to cover all of those beings on all those levels there's nobody that you miss Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Um,
1: <laughs>
2: well, something happened to me at the end that it occurred to me that there's maybe something in the practice that I'd like to know about. Which is when I was um when I was doing, you know, the person I have trouble with mm-hmm. I kept losing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um and I, I needed something to bring me back and the the last person that I looked at a <laughs> so, you know, I, I just would turn around, and her eyes were closed, so I could look at her, and I thought, right, that was good, You know, and then I <laughs> hmm. it. <laughs> so, it's trying to bring me back, and I wanted to thank you. <laughs> um, but it occurred to me, like, maybe there's, is there something about a touchstone, or...?
0: Exactly so. Perfect question, because the touchstone in this practice, did you ever hear the question, that it's hard often, it's difficult often, when we bring to mind someone with about whom we felt some pain, did you discover that when that person comes to mind, there's kind of a, <laughs> and the heart kind of says, okay, I loved everybody up to now, but forget it with this person. Did, did you notice that? I mean, there's a little bit, you know, we nurse a grudge for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It doesn't just go away in one afternoon. It's hard. It's kind of a habit of mind. There are all kinds of reasons why it's a habit of mind, which we can talk about if you want to. But that being true, we really need ways. What we are doing is we are erasing the patterns of mind. This this whole practice of metta-vipassana, one of the names that it's called is the purification of the heart. And I love it. I have an idea that this is like a washing machine for my grudge list of the heart. When I first went to do the first, the first time I did intensive meta practice, I kind of knew how it went, and I knew that I'd go and I'd spend some days on the benefactor, and then some days on good friends, and then some days, maybe weeks on neutral people, and then eventually I'd get up to what's called in the text, the enemy. And I thought to myself, piece of cake, I don't have any enemies. I thought, it's going to be that part. As a matter of fact, I thought, oh, well, I'll have trouble because I'll have to dredge up some enemy. I don't have any enemies. It was incredible to me to discover that while I don't have any full-on feuds with every anybody, I've got a whole list of ten years ago so-and-so said this about me, <laughs> and I marked it down in some <laughs> incredible way with indelible ink somewhere in the heart, and it stays there. Uh, unbeknownst to me, does isn't that I got up every day and thought, mm, what so and so said. It's totally gone from the conscious mind, but somewhere in there is a little piece of mmm tied up around that person so that when you hear their voice or they phone up on the telephone, you know when you answer the telephone and someone says, hello, this is so and so, and you feel, ah, you know that feeling? <laughs> That person is not on your list of people that you totally love. That's a sign. But I had so many people on that list, it was incredible to me. Do you remember in the Mikado, I guess, the Lord High Executioner is keeping a little list? I was amazed at what a little list I had of people who had offended me one way or another, in the most minor way, but I think that the... um, Ego, in the Western sense of the word, ego, our sense of self, our sense of being important or valuable or whatever, is so fragile, really, that somebody says a criticism or somebody hurts us or offends us or whatever it is, and we feel a little bit threatened in our self-esteem. We mark it right down there in that little book, and we just have it as a thing about that person. That's only the little stuff, that's not even the big stuff, that's the little stuff. So in fact what we're doing is we're counteracting that habit of heart that reflexively goes, "Mm," and then, okay, everybody else I love but not this person. And we're correcting it not because we want to get the Mother Teresa award for, you know, loving everybody, but because it's a much happier way to be. If you love everybody, you can throw away that list. I don't have to remember who made what remark about me. It's just really a more relaxing way to be. I don't have to remember who was not nice to me 30 years ago. Why should I carry around that stuff with me? It's just extra baggage. And the way that one corrects it, in fact, is with that touchstone that you bring up. The reason that one does meta practice in this graduated way, it's such an incredibly beautiful science, I just love it, is you start with something that's really easy, like baby steps. You tell yourself, who is my benefactor? Whether it's Thich Han, or I think of my meta guru, or I think of my grandchildren, or I think of whomever it is that I think about. And I feel totally wonderful. And I make all those good wishes towards them. And I'm really feeling very good. I mean, it's, it really is like being Santa Claus of the heart. You're just totally generous. Maybe this, and maybe that. Maybe this, and maybe that. And you discover that it makes you happy. To do that that's a really relaxed way everybody felt happy I think that's probably true so you start with what's really going to make you happy and you wish yourself well as well because incidentally that makes you happy to wish yourself well because it means whether you know it or not in those moments of wishing yourself well even for those people who have those but I don't merit it I'm not worth it Thich not Hanh okay but not me in those moments where you wish yourself well we are forgiving ourselves for whatever wasn't perfect about ourselves. So they're really moments of self-forgiveness. And they're really very healing. And they make us happy. So we cultivate that. We have only one day together, so we didn't cultivate very long. I'll end up by, by making a commercial for five days in March, if you want to do it for five days, day and night. Come with me to Santa Rosa, the Pied Pipo's is now going <laughs> to <laughs> come with me to Santa Rosa at, at the, from the 1st to the 6th of March. We'll do five days. Really do day and night metta. So you cultivate, 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 and you get in a happy mood about it. While you're in a happy mood, you bring to mind people whom you love a lot, so they don't really much jeopardize your happy mood. The mind doesn't have much of a problem about that because here's your same person a little ragged around the edges but, you know, who is not? We are all ragged around the edges and it, when you're kind of in an expansive and loving mood you don't see the ragged edges. Isn't that so, really? When The people that you love a lot remember that they're chronically late, or that they uh, chronically this, or chronically that, or chronically messy, or whatever it is, not so tidy as you are, or whatever it is that they are. But that's very small potatoes compared to the fact that the whole person, their essence, we really love, and we enjoy wishing them well, so that you can keep on wishing well and basking in how good it feels to be wishing well. While you're kind of on a roll with that, whether it takes days or weeks or whatever, you begin to include other people. I remember one of my teachers telling me I was really quite struck with it, and you might see how this is for you, how surprised he was to find when he was doing intensive practice for the first time and the instruction was to include neutral people, how he realized with some dismay and chagrin how many people there were whom he saw daily in his life that he didn't recognize or register. You know, that we it might, at least this was his case. He said, here I was in my life, thinking about my teacher and myself and my friends, but there were all kinds of people whom I saw every day. The person in the, in the shops where I shopped or the gardener or the person who delivered the mail or whatever, that we just saw as objects, not as people. Just kind of floating objects when you think about that. And they're the same floating objects, you know. that One of the persons who has been a, a checker in the supermarket that I have shopped at for the 30 years or more that I've lived in Marin has been there since I came. Actually, we know each other now, but. But there are faces that we pass all the time, that we see all the time, but that remain somehow, if we are standing offish in our heart space, that we remain separate from. Which And that's a gulf that we could easily cross. First of all, we could cross it in our heart by wishing them well in our heart as we saw them, being conscious of them as persons with trips, wanting as much as we do to be happy. And we could actually cross it in actual fact by saying, hello, how are you? I hope the day is going all right with you. It's actually meta practice has, for me, really amplified my commitment to doing that more and more. That just in the pace of getting through our lives, I think we more and more withdraw into our spaces. The world is getting more hectic and more crowded. There's not so much opportunity to pass the time of day or to touch in a certain kind of a way. So that in doing the practice in a, in a graduated way, you start where it's easy, you include where it's pretty easy, then you make an attempt to bring to consciousness maybe even people you never even noticed before. And by that time, in, in certainly an in intensive practice, what's really become clear is that the, be- the, the, the most immediate recipient of meta resolves is yourself. That people ask sometimes, how do I know that other people are feeling my good wishes? Or how do I know this looks like prayer? It is prayer. And I they say, how do I know that if I am making meta resolves for other people, that it's actually helping them? Well, that's a whole other thing. And if somebody wants to ask that, we'll talk about that. Maybe it is, but it certainly is helping the maker of the resolves. It's helping here. To break down any barriers to loving, which then stand in our way of devoting ourselves in the most available way to people with with kindness and with compassion and with non-envious support of their good fortune. We are the most immediate recipients of our meta resolve. And as that becomes clear, the uh, impulse to let go of it, it's kind of like you're on a roll. Why would you want to let go of it? Then what happens is that here comes a thought of somebody that's been really difficult. And often the heart and the mind can open. Now we come to the the question about the touchstone. This is why you do it in that graduated way. And in fact, when the Buddha taught it, he taught the benefactor as the touchstone. That as soon as the benefactor is easy, as you move out in these concentric spheres of folks more and more and more, at any point that there's a difficulty, that something comes up and the extending of metta is at all inhibited, you go back to square one. You go back, you bring to mind the image of your benefactor, whoever it is smiling at you, whether it's Thich Han or the person that you looked at just before you closed your eyes before. And you get a, like a little hit of refuel off it. And then you start from there and go out again. So it's exactly the right question to ask. That's why we do graduated metta. And that's why also in the largest sense, everyone becomes our benefactor. So we don't have to really think of that one benefactor. The person to whom we say hello in the supermarket or in the post office, who then responds with pleasure because you've just touched them in some real way, you get a little hit off it. So then you go out and you respond to the next person that way. And they get a hit off it, so they respond. And then you feel happy, and then some thought of something really painful comes up for you. But you're able to absorb the pain. The mind and the heart get softer. That's a kind of a um, tactile metaphor, but it's really what I feel. Someone was going to ask a question. Go ahead.
1: um, I I had an Finding was this morning. But I found it was much more difficult to, um, you know, to, to succeed or to to feel good about my benefactors than about myself. And I was puzzled by that. And I worked through. I worked with it the rest of the day. And now I found that it was easier with my enemies than with my close people. Mm. And the neutral people were sort of neutral. <laughs> and and the other things happened. Right.
0: This is a very this is a very interesting question. I think it's a wonderful question. You get all the question about theoretically it ought to work sort of from top down in terms of what would be most accessible. It works out differently for different people. I found in my own experience that I didn't think about the benefactor much when I first started my practice. I thought only about me and I worried about that. I started my metta practice at a time that uh, it, my uh, my life and my vipassana practice was in quite an agitated state. I really started metta practice not out of any great confidence that it would work but out of desperation and uh, so it, where is he supposed to start with all this ease of I was really eager for it to work, and I had to work it sort of having non-striving because I wanted so desperately to feel better. On the other hand, even though we're supposed to practice from a place of non-desperation, I could really connect with those phrases about may I be free from danger and happy and at ease. So everything has a, a way of shifting it around so that it's manageable. So I could really connect with those phrases, and I really got into doing it. And as soon as I got into doing it, I began to feel a certain amount of ease, and I began to feel better. I began to feel better. I was just doing it. And every once in a while I'd remember, wait a minute, I'm supposed to do my benefactor. And I'd feel guilty that I hadn't thought about my benefactor, who had benefacted me by giving me this great practice. So I'd say a quick few things for my benefactor, but then I was right back on myself again because that's really where my energy was. Your energy was in yourself because you're in a good place and that was giving you a lot of energy. My energy was in myself because I was in a needy place and I was needing that energy. It was what was most connecting to me. I would even venture to think in your in your case about being able to connect with the people who have quote unquote wronged you in a particularly spacious way really with energy at this point is I think that sometimes happens in a place when we have been particularly fortunate when we have been when our cup runneth over we are really in a place to be benevolent you know that that's when it's easy it's hard if our cup is not running over especially from that place of feeling mm, to get up to really forgiving people who have cause this difficulty? In a sense, it's a very good question because in a sense, if our cup is not running over in some way, the graduated practice by bringing to mind benefactors and good friends who love us in a way is a way of replenishing the cup systematically until it runs over and then you get to a place where you can wish well to other people. I'm very happy that you asked that question because what I'd like to keep is the largest um, framework for, for this practice in the sense of it does have a structure and it does have instructions. But the, the fundamental instruction is to really uh, have as the intention of the heart to be as much in touch with the naturalness of loving and, and compassionate response that really is our own that has, for whatever reason, been obscured, and whatever works becomes then the technique. Sometimes people get all um, uh, kind of unnecessarily stuck in instructions and technique. The technique and the instructions are commentary, they are aids to the practice. The practice is manifesting loving-kindness, that's the practice. The question is, what do I mean by intensive practice? Uh, we did intensive practice here for six hours uh, because we didn't do anything else. We maintained silence and we and we practiced this whole time. Uh, usually when we say intensive practice, in this sort of a scene, when we say intensive practice, it means going away from our lives a little bit, maybe for a day or two days or a weekend or a week or any amount of time. Um, one of the things that I am committed to is that uh, we can do intensive practice of metta in our lives. It's absolutely nothing peculiar about metta practice. There's no reason why you can't drive a car, go to the supermarket, negotiate the DMV, do everything else that you have to do, and do it from a space of attentiveness to the intention of the heart. Are we wishing the other person well? You know, a lot of magic happens if you do that. can't imagine how people around you change. You know the image we did earlier of we are radio stations broadcasting? That's true. You broadcast on that frequency. The world actually changes, isn't it? The fact, we change inside also, so the day feels different. Uh, so that, in fact, we can do intensive practice in our lives, and we should do intensive practice in our life. You know, the amazing thing about vipassana and metta practice is that they are not retreat practices. They they really are life practices. There's no reason why, in our life, we should not, in every moment, be cultivating clarity and kindness. That's what it's about. Vipassana is clarity, and this is the practice of generosity or kindness of the heart. There's no moment in life that we shouldn't be cultivating clarity and kindness. There are actually other kinds of practices that are really altered states, deep concentration practices, that really do require retreats. These don't. And retreats are sometimes very helpful just to establish the practice. So that's what it means. Usually when I'm saying intensive, I mean going away and doing a little bit of intensive, more intensive practice. But I really want to say it's a live practice. Yes?
1: Just in, in what you're saying, you know, I was just comparing this with the practice of mindfulness, mm-hmm. which I try to practice this to some degree, the effort there through my life. How would you, in my daily routine, now I'm a little confused, how would you fit in a meta practice? You're describing times when I try to practice mindfulness to practice meta. So how, would you fit in both?
0: So the question is, how do we do mindfulness practice and meta practice? all the time. Actually, there's a way in which I don't think they're different. I mean, obviously they're different, the metas making certain resolves of the mind. Um, If you think of mindfulness practice as the cultivation moment-to-moment of clarity about what's going on, that's what it is. I mean, it's not being with the breath or being with the walking. I mean, those are things that we do to cultivate clarity, but those are just things that we do to cultivate clarity. It's not mindfulness just breathing and walking. Clarity is the cultivation of clarity in every moment, to see what's true, to be present to what's true. I to think of um, all of practice as generosity, as patience and generosity. Patience in any moment to wait to know what's happening and then responding with openness or kindness. So they're really just the same. The the techniques of did I say my phrases, that's one way to be practicing metta. To be responding from a compassionate space, from a generous place, from a heartfelt place, that doesn't necessarily mean saying phrases. It means just responding from that place, which we can do at any moment. So that if somebody says how much... Um, Metta practice did you do today, you'd be able to say 14 hours, or however however many hours you were up. And how much Vipassana practice did you do? I well, did 14 hours of that too, the same time. I tried to stay alert and I tried to respond with kindness and generosity. That would be doing mindfulness and doing metta all day. Now, on top of that, the specific practice of making these recitations, that fits in the day, just in those odd times. I'm. I'm serious about standing in line in the supermarket and riding my car and waiting in the DMV and sitting in the dentist chair. There are all kinds of times of the day where actually just dwelling in those phrases really conditions that sort of a heart space and mind state that allows us in our external interchanges to manifest in that sort of kindly and generous way. It actually gets to be... Really pleasant, I mean you're singing yourself a nice tune all day. I know that I've used that that notion of singing yourself a tune many times today, so we have to talk about that actually means singing or saying. How many people sang? Okay. You can sing if you want to. I remember going to my teacher sometime in my first experience of intensive practice, because I discovered... That um, actually, I discovered that uh, for me, you remember I told you I started to do this practice because I was in a somewhat agitated mind and body state with the rest of my life in practice. And uh, I had a kind of intensity about doing the metta practice. I was doing that metta with the same intensity. And uh, it was, in a sense, complicating the intensity of my experience. And I discovered that if I sang, it's just uncomplicated at all. You can't sing in an intense way.
1: <laughs> I
0: mean, I guess you can certain arias that are. I mean,
1: <laughs>
0: but I didn't pick out that kind of a tune. I picked out a tune that I picked out a tune that was easy for me to sing. I won't tell you my tune because everybody should think of their own tune. Actually my tune is out of an opera, but it's a very lilting kind of a refrain. And it just goes nicely on the phrases. I can sing it to myself all the time. And when I sit, more likely than not it presents itself with its little tune. So I was doing that for a while in my practice and I was worried that I'd go tell it to my teacher and that she would say, uh, "No, you know straight and narrow and don't don't doodle it up with anything extra. Anyway, I went and I said, listen, can I uh, sing? <laughs> and she said, sure. I mean, uh, originally the monks who did this did it to a chant. Mm-hmm. So chanting is the same as singing. So somebody told me recently that they uh, sang their metta to Amazing Grace, which is a clue. It's not what I sing it to, but it's what they sing it to. (laughs) And it's kind of a... I mean, Amazing Grace makes a lot of people feel good, so if you can fit that in. You have to negotiate the words a little bit in Amazing Grace. You have to fiddle around with them so they scan better, but...
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Two sort of related questions. You talked about the metta sutta. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you give me a reference to the text um, where I would find it from the original?
0: Yeah. It's from the Discourse on the Practice of Loving-Kindness. Karaniya Metta Sutta. I think I, I'm trying to figure out where you would find it, uh, whether it's the middle-length middle, middle length discourses. Um, i trying to think of what text it would be in.
1: Maybe Shambhala
2: Bookstore
0: would know. The Shambhala would know. What's the name of that text?
2: Um, it's in the commentary,
0: too. I, I can, I'm trying to remember where you'll find it outside of um, some canonical text. I'll read you a piece of it. May all beings be happy whatever their living nature, whether weak or strong, omitting none, whether large or long, middle-sized or short, fine or coarse, those which can be seen and those which cannot, those which are near and those which are far away, those that are already born and those that are yet to be, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise anyone for any reason. Nor should anyone with anger or thoughts of hate ever wish another being harm. Just as a parent should give their life to protect their one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts with loving-kindness towards all beings, should we boundlessly open our hearts above, below, and all around, free from any narrowness. There are are several um, (coughs) translations of the Metta Sutta Actually, my friend Andy Olensky at the IMS, who's a Pali scholar, is compiling me several different references of the Metta Sutta, several different uh, mm. translations of the Metta Sutta. And I thought what I would do in preparation for um, that retreat in March is I'd get maybe mm. a half a dozen translations of the Metta Sutta and read another one every day. I like to keep this translation in front of my zafu when I'm sitting and doing metta practice. Then I can open my eyes and see it. Actually, I fixed it up a little bit. You'll notice I said, just as a parent. The original metta sutta says, just as a mother. I think in the 20th century we have to say, in the 21st century we we have to say, just as a parent. And the original metta sutta says, just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child. We have so much awareness of how distraught parents that we know many of us have experienced have not done that because they weren't able to personally. And for lots of people it brings up a storm in the mind because that wasn't their experience of their parenting. So I find myself instead of saying just as a mother would give her life, I'm saying just as a parent should give their life to protect their one and only child. Actually, I'll change it, I think, just as a parent should give their life to protect anyone's child, or just as anyone should give their life to protect anyone's <laughs> child. We're getting closer and closer, aren't we? Keep going. Isn't that better? Yeah. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. That's the bottom line. doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter who they are. That's actually the point of metta practice. That when you discover if there are any barriers to the heart opening fully towards all beings, then we are the one who loses. (coughs) Not that being. Sometimes people feel... I think it's one of the saddest things that you sometimes hear. Somebody says, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so as long as I live. That's about the saddest thing to hear because so-and-so, wherever they are, is going around having a life. And in the meantime, here we are, denying to ourselves the pleasure really of letting it go. when I mean, we have no choice about what has already happened to us has already happened. We have only a choice of how we relate to it. And if we continue to relate to it with bitterness, we are coloring the present moment with bitterness, so that whatever pain went on in the past continues in the present in a sense, We often unwittingly become the perpetuators of the violence that happened to us in the past, of the pain that happened to us in the past. It is very sad, the pains that happened to us, that happened to all beings at all times, at different times. But that we could free ourselves from the continuation of that pain is so exciting to me that we, in fact, have the keys to our own liberation in our own hands. I sometimes think about, I have the image in my mind of um, uh, old, um, old West movies, which you don't see very much anymore, but used to be old West comedies where someone would get locked in a jail in a Western town. And the joke would be that you would know that the jail cell really wasn't locked, but that they were, in fact, thrown into the jail and the door bangs shut and they rattle the bars, but you know that the door is actually open, but they, whatever, the person is a buffoon and they don't know that they can open the door and get out. I have the vision that we, in fact, lock ourselves in a jail. We pull the door closed, we have the key in our hand, we reach around, we lock the door, and we throw the <laughs> key away from where we can reach it. And we say, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so as long as I live thereby locking ourselves into that trap of painfulness and continuing the torment of it. And we have the possibility to say, I won't do that anymore. It does not mean forgetting.
1: Yeah? yeah I was touching the memory of, of a number of different people, and um, I kind of hit Rush Limbaugh. Mm-hmm. So, but, and what I found was that it wasn't so much him but these disembodied opinions, of, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. that even when I sort of resolve my feelings about him a little bit, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> those, those notions yeah. still gnaw me.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, okay, go ahead, is that piece of his question?
2: Okay. And certain people do keep acting hurtful over and over again. And it seems a little
0: strange to be um forgiving them while they're doing it because perhaps there's anything else to do. Okay. Th the two the, I mean there's two very the, the it's an important and serious question and I I really value that you're able to see that you're able to see past the person and see these are opinions. Uh, I think what happens that fires up our machinery a lot around those kinds of situations is a certain amount of alarm. Uh-oh, if that person keeps on saying their opinions, other people will get interested in those opinions, and then things will come to pass that I don't think will be good things to happen, so I really should stop it. And I think what happens to really uh, fire us up is we get frightened that opinions that we think are hurtful will sort of hold sway that we're in some way threatened just as if someone who has been hurtful in the past is continuing to perpetuate the hurt now it's actually not enough to be uh, spacious in the mind state or forgiving or even understanding if you're able to say to yourself goodness this person is being abusive because their parents before them were abusive and their parents before them were abusive so it's perfectly understandable to see this person has those opinions actually because they believe them. They actually think that's the way to happiness. It's, you know, it's not the way you see it, but they actually believe that, I think. That doesn't mean that in that spaciousness, which also leads to not hating the person, we shouldn't also take some action to counteract that behavior. That if you are involved with someone who's be continuing to perpetuate pain, you make every attempt to stop it. Or you don't hang out with them. Or you tell other people, don't go near that person. That's not a good person to hang out with. That forgiving is not forgetting. It doesn't mean that we have amnesia or that we have no response at all. It means that we have sometimes quite serious response, um, even dramatic response, but we don't do it out of anger. The response is clearer. I think we have to you know, redouble our efforts to write editorials back to radio stations and write letters to all of the newspapers and speak out for our opinions if they differ from those opinions which we have, which we find threatening. I, um, I, I, I particularly think I understand the kind of uh, alarm that comes up when opinions that seem perhaps um, really frightening seem to be gaining a certain amount of sway. I, uh, I, I particularly have as a practice that I read uh, certain columnists in the newspapers whose editorial views I know are quite different from mine, who are not inflammatory, actually. I actually pick up the inflammatory ones. It's easy for me to dismiss. I pick out the ones that are not inflammatory, that I know to be reasoned and considered thinkers and good writers, and have another opinion from me. It's been the most difficult kind of practice because I come from a long line of opinionated women. and
1: um, <laughs>
0: I feel strongly about my opinions, and it's a challenge for me to read another opinion and really to reflect on it, as, 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 hold it in the space of this person has the same data that I do, they've reflected on it, and they have a different view. And can I somehow hold that? I can even end up disagreeing with their view, but not being angry about it. I should probably tell you the classic story of my um, friend Sharon Salzberg, which is now public knowledge because it's uh, in Joseph Goldstein's new book, which is a wonderful book called Insight Meditation, The Path to Freedom. It's a new book out just in the last few weeks. I really love it. It's wonderful. And in it he tells a, a story that I've known for a long time about Sharon, who by the way is my metta guru, Um, about 20 years ago Sharon in uh, India was uh, being driven somewhere in a rickshaw and suddenly from some shadows some person, some man, I think probably drunk, leaped into the rickshaw and began to attack her. She was very alarmed. She was a young girl. She was on her way to her teacher's, and at some with some difficulty managed to escape, but very frightened, and arrived at her teacher's, very shook up, but not substantially harmed, and told him what had happened. And he said, "Did you have your umbrella with you?" And she said, "Yes, I did." And he said, "What you should have done, my dear." with all the loving-kindness in your heart, you should have hit him as hard as you could have with your umbrella, <laughs> which is a very classic story about it does not mean you just take it. You do what you have to do, but you don't have to do it out of anger. You do it with a resoluteness, because it's what has to be done. But that's all. You do it and you finish.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. expansive here in my heart. Mm-hmm. And so my question or, or wonderment is is because I was sitting here actually thinking those words and saying them aloud and mm-hmm. like, whatever, was it really working? Uh-huh. I mean, do I have
0: to have that expansive journey in my heart to have it really be working? That's a very good question. And how what do we mean working? You know, that's a, uh it's a really good question because I think more the I don't know where the line is, I'm sure it's scripture, but it's uh, by their fruits, will you know them? That's somewhere in scripture, but I don't know where. Um, I really can, uh, uh, I think I can relate to what you're saying. I think often at the end of a retreat, of a five day or seven day Vipassana retreat, we are already so sensitized and so quiet and so vulnerable and so open that we might just have the suggestion of bringing to mind these well-loved persons, or bringing to mind and forgiving people with whom we've had difficulties. And our emotional system is already conditioned in such a rarefied way from the week, that in that moment, maybe actually we have quite an emotional response, so we think, ah, the metta worked. I think it was the week that worked, and the metta which manifested in that particular way. Um, I think perhaps, you know, maybe for myself, because I'm not a very sentimental person and I don't cry a lot, Um, and I think I feel quite deeply about things. I can't judge an experience. I tend not to judge an experience by how an emotional a response I had to it. I really want to judge all of my practice with whether or not I'm kinder. That's getting so much clearer to me as um, as time goes by. Really when I started my practice I didn't have a clue, any practice. I really didn't have a clue about what I wanted from it. It was the 60s and 70s and everybody was doing some sort of a practice, but it was kind of the zeitgeist. It was what you did on the weekends. I really didn't have any idea of what I wanted. It would kind of be good for you, or I'd get enlightened, whatever that was, but I didn't have much of a clue about what that was either. And then I actually secretly had the idea after a while that what it would be would be some really glorious mind state, some kind of Fourth of July of the mind, kind of like drugs, which was also the other zeitgeist of the 60s and 70s. and there are, certainly for people who do intensive meditation practice, either metta practice or vipassana practice, certainly if people do rarefied practice in, in uh, monastic settings, there are all kinds of extraordinary and often glorious mind states that happen. But they're not the point of practice. I really think that this is a purification of the heart. The point of practice is to develop clarity and wisdom and understanding so that we will behave kindly and skillfully because that's fundamentally what's going to make us happy it's really in a certain way after all the storm and drang and fireworks and psychedelics and uh, fluorescent day glow it comes down to something as uh, as uncomplicated as developing patience and generosity and kindness the Dalai Lama um, as one of the things that he says, which I really admire a lot, says, "My religion is kindness." That makes it really very simple. Um, and you know, I, I think it's even simpler than that, because or, or more complicated, complex, however you want to look at it, it's not something that we have to cultivate. Uh, it's actually how we are when we're at ease. You know, somebody said, what does it mean, ease of well-being? It's a funny phrase. It is a funny phrase, and I keep my phrase just that funny because I don't know exactly what it is. But I have a feeling that if we all had the ease of well-being, which is part of our natural birthright, that we would respond with kindness. It makes the most sense. It's the most natural thing. I had a teacher a couple of years ago who said... Uh, You know, if your hand puts food in your mouth, you don't think of it as a kind gesture. It's just the natural thing that has to happen. So if we are kind to one another, it comes out of the realization that we are to one another, connected in the same way as my hand to my mouth. It's really, behaving in a way that's kind is really a a statement about wisdom in quite a profound way. I see that it must be four, it is four. Let's sit a little bit, short sit. As a preparation for our last wishing of well-wishes to ourselves and to all beings, I'd like to tell you what the scripture says will be the benefits of practicing metta. Because I think if you know the benefits of practicing metta, you'll feel very happy. It will inspire your well-wishing. These are the benefits of practicing metta. People who practice metta... Sleep peacefully and wake peacefully dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Devas love them. Devas will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in the Brahma realms. Now, (laughs) everybody for themselves, in whatever way you do it, intentions for yourself. And intentions for the people in the room who supported you in your practice throughout the day. And the same well-wishing for all other beings, those that are near and those that are far, those that can be seen, those that (coughs) cannot, those that are already born and those that are yet to be. The list in classical practice is all beings, all living beings, all creatures, all individuals, all things in existence, all females, all males, all enlightened beings, all unenlightened beings, all devas and brahmas, all human beings, all beings on other realms. May the merit of our practice be offered as a communal gift, as our gift together to the well-being of all beings. The traditional belief that to practice together, to practice at all, is to accumulate merit and as a gesture of generosity and a recognition of our interbeing with all beings. We can give away whatever merit we've accrued by practicing together today as a gift to the well-being of all beings in all realms. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy.
2: This talk was given by Sylvia Birsten at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 31, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.